Amen. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 21. So you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 21, and we're going to look at verse 12 uh, through 23. So Matthew 21, 12 through 23. And as you do, I want you to think about how hard it is to listen. And kids, you know this. You know how hard it is to listen. It's hard to listen because sometimes you don't know the words. It's hard to listen because sometimes you do know the words and you don't like them. But listening is hard and we live in a world with nonstop chatter. When there's chatter on the television, chatter on the radio, chatter coming through your earbuds, there's chatter in your mind. And even today, this kind of scene is like airing your opinion is seen as like courageous and the thing you need to do to be true and authentic. But listening is not really something that's valued. And not listening can cost you. It can cost you things in this life. Uh, this weekend, uh, the girls and I were out shopping at TJ Maxx. And so I did what I normally do whenever we're shopping is I had my earbuds in and I was listening to a book. Um, I mean, what else are you going to do when you shopped? And uh, while I was listening to my book, I heard over the loudspeaker, it was just some mumbling. I couldn't hear what they were saying. And then I saw some, uh, some ladies in the home section start to move with some energy. And so I had to ask my daughter Maddie, I said, Maddie, what's going on? What did they say? You know, is, that, like, is there a fire or something? And she said, oh, no, they said something about like 50% off something over there. And I said, all right, we, we won't worry about it. So you don't listen, you're not going to hear when lotion goes on sale for 50% off. But things can be worse. I mean, starting about 2011, they started noticing um, the significant health risks that, you know, these little things were causing. And so in 2011, there were 535 deaths on the railroads where uh, people had their headphones in and they didn't, they didn't hear. And then in, uh, in Britain in 2012, uh, their version of the, their national like, highway safety organization published a report that one of the central public safety issues in England uh, was what they termed, I, I love it, I wish I could say it with a British accent because it would sound so much more uh, intelligent, but they said, uh, pedestrians are distracted because they are taking, or they are talking on a mobile phone. They can be affected by inattentional blindness. So if you ever have someone like your husband doesn't, he's not hearing what you're saying. You say, you stop that inattentional blindness. And then they define, they say, this is a reduction in attention to external stimuli that we have also dubbed iPod oblivion. And she's saying, that was 2012. They dubbed iPod oblivion. And I don't think things have gotten better. Like they say in Bangladesh, around 1,000 people die every year because they have their headphones in and they don't hear the, the trains coming. I don't saw in 2018 uh, on the Amtrak trains in Central Florida, uh, in a span of about a weekend, there was a 28-year-old man who died near Tampa and an 11-year-old girl who uh, was killed in Haines City. And in both cases, they had their he the headphones in and they were looking at their phone and just didn't, didn't hear it. So not hearing... I mean, it can cost you in small ways and big ways. I mean, not listening could cost you an opportunity at a clearance item at TJ Maxx, or it could cost you something more. It can cost you physically. It can cost you spiritually. 
Because when Christ comes, he wants hearers. He wants people who listen to his word and respond appropriately. In many ways, that's what discipleship is. It's a faithful hearing and responding. Christ is going to tell us who he is, and he wants us to be open and receptive. And so one of the central themes of the Bible is, do you hear? How well do you hear? And today what we're going to see is Jesus as the great prophet who's coming and he wants his word to be heard and sent out an email this week to set it up. And David has this beautiful psalm in Psalm 32 where he's calling God's people to, to hear. And I love the way the NLT translates it because it says, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I'm going to guide you along the path. This is the best pathway for your life. I will advise you and watch over you, but don't be like the senseless mule or the horse. And now that's a Hebrew euphemism. They use stronger language. You can fill in the blank. Don't be like the donkey. Don't be like the mule who needs the bit and the bridle to keep it under control. And what he's saying is that the willingness to hear and respond is what makes us fully alive and human. Don't be like the mule. And the irony in our story today is one of the key characters is a mule, is a donkey, but it's in many ways the obedient one. And so our goal for you this morning is don't be like the mule. So let's look and set up the text. So we've come to chapter 21 in Matthew, and Matthew's gospel is moving to this climactic movement where the king is coming back into Jerusalem, and there's all this tension about what's going to happen, because now Jesus is taking on kind of the, the public praise that he's the son of David, and he's coming, and everybody knows that something big is about to happen but kind of the great irony is that he's coming riding into town, but he's not riding on a conquering war horse. He's coming humble and gentle on a donkey, and he's coming into town not to be served, but to serve. He's coming not to take life, but to give his life. And then he comes, and he's surrounded by probably 100,000, probably 250,000 people are, are uh, uh, descending on Jerusalem and coming, and they've all come to worship and eat and drink and celebrate the Passover in God's presence. And there's all this energy as he comes in, and then what happens here over this week is very surprising. It's surprising for us, and we know the story. And it would have been incredibly surprising for them. So let's read it and then unpack some of the things. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But you have made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you not read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out to the city he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. And in the morning he was returning to the city and he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree. But even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. 
And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. So what Matthew is doing in this section is he's giving us three different snapshots. And each of those snapshots are meant to illustrate a key aspect of who Jesus is. He has come, and that's the theme over all of Matthew. Who is this? And the three pieces, he's come as the, the merciful high priest. And you see that in the chapter 20, who, who bears our iniquities, bears our burdens. He comes bringing mercy and healing. And then the triumphal entries, he comes as the mighty king. He's coming humbly, but he is the king. He's the priest, he's the king. And then here we see him as a great prophet who delivers God's authoritative word, who comes to cleanse the temple and clean. And he brings God's powerful word that he expects us to hear and then respond. So we're going to look at a couple of things that when he comes with his word, it's a word uh, that he comes, he comes cleansing, he comes curing, he comes doing a number of different things. So let's walk through each verse and just think about what his word is doing when he comes. And first look at verse 12 and 13. He comes cleansing. You see, Matthew begins right away. Jesus taking action. He's coming into the temple. He's driving out those who are buying and selling. He's overturning tables of the money changers and those who are selling doves. And it's worth pausing because this, when Jesus comes into the temple and in John, into John 2 at the beginning of his ministry and then here at the very end, it's the only time that we ever see in his whole life that he uses force like against people. And you got to stop and say, why? What's going on? What had him so upset? And look who he's kind of going after. It's the money changers and then those who are selling, buying and selling in the temple. So who are they? The money changers. All right, they were merchants in Jerusalem. So why were they there? I mean, they were there to provide a very good and necessary service. So they had, people had come, they traveled great distances to attend the Passover, the monetary gifts and the things you would need for the sacrifice and the celebration. You had to pay at that time, it was using Tyrian shekels that you could only get at the temple. So you would need to uh, exchange those. So you had to convert the currency. Nobody wanted to transport all of the animals they would need for the sacrifice. So it would just be easier to have it all there. And what I find so interesting is it's not necessarily the buying and selling that Jesus is attacking. It's, it's happening in the temple. So it's not necessarily that this thing is wrong. It's just that it's wrong here in this place at this time. And I say that because even this past uh, year, I heard multiple people making kind of the case that because of this, Jesus was against like free market economics. And that's not quite the point. He's going after the corruption of the purpose of the temple. That's why he says, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. This is to be a house of prayer. Now, even when he says that prayer, the technical word for this is a synecdoche. So a synecdoche is when you use one word to describe the whole. So I'm actually thinking about one of my best friends growing up, his grand... Siri didn't understand that. So let's try again. All right, a synecdoche is when you use one word to describe the whole. And one of my friends growing up, his grandmother used to say things to us like, um, she doesn't know how to respond. Uh, she would say things like, uh, get your behind back in here. And now, you know, when she was talking about our behind, um, I never tried this, but it would, I would think in my head, I wonder what she'd do if I just like, did that. It wouldn't go well uh, for me. And she wasn't, so you know, that's a synecdoche. She wants the whole body, the whole being. 
all of you back in here. And so when it says my house would be a house of prayer, this is the totality of what it means to come into the presence of the living Lord. You come, you sing in praises, you pray, you hear preaching and teaching. And we can see that because the kids are celebrating and they get praised by Jesus. And then when Jesus comes the next morning to the temple, he starts preaching and teaching. So this is what it's meant to be about, the totality of worship, of coming into God's presence. And there had long been markets nearby outside the temple to, comp uh, to take care of all those legitimate needs. The problem is what needs to be out there has crept closer and closer into in here. You know, it's kind of like, now th they were in the, the court of the Gentiles. And you see that because they were allowed the kids there. They allowed the blind and the lame who were considered unclean. They were allowed there. So this was a unique place set aside so... Uh, People that Jews would consider outcasts could still come and worship. But then they filled it with kind of the market. So it would be kind of similar if we enacted a policy here. Um, if we said, all right, all of you, like, like we love all you tall guys. A unique problem at this church is we have too many tall guys. And so if you're 6'4 over... What we're going to need to do, and then, you know, we love having you around, and we're all for body positivity, but you cause some problems. So, like, you stand up close, and you block the screen, and you just take up so much space this way and this way. So, we're going to, everybody's six, four, and over. We're going to get you your own little space out here, and that's where you can come in, and you can, you can worship and be a part of the church. And then if we did that, and then on top of that, we decided as a revenue strategy to set up our own mobile Starbucks out there in that space. And then, you know, all of the poor tall guys was, hey, we're coming here. We just want to worship, but we can't even concentrate because all I hear is the swirling of the milk and crying out. All right, I got a double uh, cafe venti mocha chai for Joe. And I can't like, we, we can't focus. And so that's what they were doing. They were excluding one group and then, in essence, exploiting their space. And one of the things Jesus says, this is supposed to be where they come to encounter the living Lord, but it's been turned into a den of robbers. And that image, that robbers, I think thieves, brigands, bandits, people who would stay on the roads, the people who attacked the, uh, the man in the story of the Good Samaritan, they would stay on the road and they would attack. And they said, this has become their hideout where they're coming back. And here Jesus comes to cleanse the house, to bring it back to its true purpose. And it's worth thinking about in the new covenant. Now, God's temple is his church and then his people. Paul says, don't you know you, you're the temple, and then you, your body, that's the temple. And so if Jesus came now to the American church as his temple, I wonder what type of tables would he want to turn over? I wonder what he would think needs to be cleaned out. Or if he came to you, into your life, into your mind, into your heart, what needs to be cleaned out? You know, the fascinating thing about the money changers' tables is that in and of themselves wasn't wrong. It's just it was wrong to have them there at that place at that time. And maybe the things that need to be cleaned out in your life aren't wrong in of themselves. They're just wrong at the place they've taken and when they've, they are taking place. So his word comes cleansing, but then notice his word comes curing. Look in verse 14, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. 
you know, the blind, the lame, they were not able to fully enter in. And he's restoring to them the wholeness, their wholeness, so now they can enter in into worship. The point was to join in God's people in worship, and they're, they're, they've been cast out. Now he's bringing them back in. And you know, this cleansing is an act of asserting authority where he's saying, this is my house, and I'm going to put out the people you've brought in, and I'm going to bring in the people you have put out. And so it's interesting to think, you know, even when he comes in to cleanse us, if things need to be put out, that just leaves a gap and a void, and it gets, needs to be, have something put back in. But he's, he's putting out and then bringing in those who need restoration, healing, so they can be restored and join with God's people in worship. And then notice verse 15, how he has to correct, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw... Now notice they see and they hear something when they saw the wonderful things that he did. And then they hear the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. I mean, they see him performing miracles and they see the children worshiping and celebrating. And this is the point. This is why the temple is here. This is why they have their ministry. This is why they have this trust from God to mediate his presence. It's happening. And so what would you think when they see and they hear they should be, they were indignant. They were angry. And then they attacked Jesus. Do you hear what these kids are saying? Do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus said, yes. Have you not ever read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? He quotes, quotes Psalm 8. And then he leaves. Now you have to feel how comically offensive that would have been? Have you not ever read Psalm 8? Have we not ever read? Not only have we not ever read it, we have it memorized in Greek and Hebrew, and then we can tell you 2,000 years worth of rabbinical comments on that. Yes, of course, we've read it. They knew it. But what's his point? You're, you have not actually, you know it, but you don't know it. It hasn't changed you, and you're not making the proper applications. And response. I mean, kids, this actually reminds me of one of the scenes in Lady and the Tramp. I don't know if you remember the scene where um, Tramp is trying to sneak Lady into the zoo to get the muzzle off. And so there's the guy who's whistling, reading the book out by the front, and then he starts barking, pretending like he belongs to that guy. And the police officer asks the guy, he says, what's the matter with you? Can't you read? And because there's a sign that says no dogs allowed. And then he says, well, why, yes, I can read in multiple languages. And he kind of missed the point. And that's exactly when Jesus said, hey, have you not ever read? I'm like, well, yeah, of course we've read. Uh, you've actually missed the entire point. And the proper response would have been to celebrate and to worship. And it might be worth just kind of dwelling on the sadness of that verse. I mean, here they've seen the wonderful works and they're hearing the praise and then they respond with anger. It's like, what could happen into your heart so you respond that way? And later in the week, I mean, Pilate sees through it. He knows they're bringing Jesus to him. Pilate sees it says it's because of their envy. They're jealous. And it's twisted them. So he corrects them. And then the next scene, he goes out. And then this scene is surprising. Did it kind of jar you when I read it that Jesus, he's hungry in the morning, wakes up, goes to a fig tree, wants a fig off the tree. There's not one there, so he curses the tree and it withers. You think, all right, what's going on here? 
I mean, like if you woke up one morning, like one Saturday morning and you drive by your neighbor uh, and your neighbor Dave is out in his yard with a stick and he's just beating his lawnmower, you think, oh, Dave's not having a very good morning. You know, what's, what's happening? I mean, is Jesus just like, this is the last straw. I've had enough. All I wanted for breakfast was my fig frittata and it's not here and enough. I can't take it anymore. You know, what's he doing? You know, all throughout the Old Testament, you see symbolic um, prophetic words that are used for judgment, like the fall, Babel, the ten plagues. Uh, but up until this point, every one of Jesus' miracles has been for healing and deliverance and grace. But here he destroys something. And you think, all right, what's happening here? You know, I think one of the key things here is that everything in Matthew's gospel is meant to teach. And I think one of the things Jesus is doing is using this as a great opportunity to give to his disciples an object lesson about the kingdom, who he is, what he came to do. You know, they would know a couple things. One is that it's symbolic action. And so the fig tree is symbolic of hypocrisy. So what it symbolizes, um, you know, Mark tells us that it wasn't the season for figs, but to be precise, fig trees would put out their leaves in the spring. And at the time of the Passover, when their leaves, there'd be the small fruits that would later ripen into more mature figs. They were not good to eat at this point, but they were at least edible, especially if you were hungry. And so seeing the leaves, they're given the promise that there's fruit here, but once you get in close to inspect it, it's all show. There's no actual fruit, and it's symbolic of the life of hypocrisy, that he's bringing judgment onto the temple and the religious leaders. They make a show of being fruitful, but it's all false. It's not there. It's not real. So symbolic of hypocrisy. The fig tree is also symbolic of the nation of Israel, like in uh, Micah. The Lord says, what misery is mine. I'm like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat. There are no early figs that I crave. And so it's, it's symbolic of the nation. And so when God blesses, it's be fruitful and multiply. And then when he uh, curses, it's no more fruit. So it's enacting out kind of this symbolic parable because they honored God with their lips and ceremonies, but their hearts were far from him. Their worship was in vain, all show, no substance. Faith looked good, but bore no fruit. And so it's a challenge to them. And then his last words, we'll call these words of coaching because the disciples marvel. And, but it's intriguing to me, they don't marvel. What they marvel at is the power of Jesus' word. And he uses that as an opportunity to teach them about the combination between the power of the word and prayer. The power of his word, prayer, praise, these things all go together. So if, you, if you just have faith, you can say to this mountain, move mountains. You know, mountains were symbols, symbols of problems and obstacles that will be laid low when the Messiah comes. The mountains were places of worship where you'd come. Mountains were also symbols of strength. Um, Rome's a city built on the seven hills. And so it's symbolic of those things. But in all of this, this, this whole section, we see that uh, summary of who Jesus is, what he came to do, three great pictures of him as the mighty priest who comes bringing healing, the mighty king who comes in power, and the great prophet, prophet who comes speaking the powerful word of the Lord that he wants to be heard and obeyed. And so we're going to spend, we have a couple things we're going to pray for in a minute, so we'll transition to our time of communion now. And as we think about communion, I want to think about what was some of the symbolism happening as Jesus comes to the temple 
in essence, for the last time in his life, he's coming up to the temple. You know, the temple is, is symbolic. It's God's throne. It's where heaven and earth touch. And it was in Jerusalem at this specific place for a very specific reason. And the pilgrims would come and pray. And it was at this location where Abraham had prepared the sacrifice of his son Isaac. But instead prophesied that the Lord will provide for himself the lamb. And then after sacrificing the ram, uh, instead of his son, Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And it is here on the mount of the Lord that it will be provided. And throughout all generations, the Israelites would come to that mountain and they would lead their lambs there to symbolically take their place. Each spring as a Passover feast, it would mark the redemption of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And thousands of lambs would be herded into the city and kept there for days and then slain in the temple. But today, that day, the true Lamb of God has come to take away the sins of the world. And then you think about on that same mountain, like where the holy place was and what would happen in the holy of holies that... Jesus had known and seen and above the cherubim and the Ark of the Covenant and the, the generations of the high priest who would enter in behind the curtain and on the Day of Atonement would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat and the people would be represented on his, his breastplate as he would come in into God's presence and he would have heard the people outside singing and celebrating as the high priest would emerge and atonement has been completed and our sins covered and a way into God's presence is now here and it's time Time to feast and celebrate in his presence. And in the back of Jesus' mind, he knows all of that. And he's coming to bring all of that to its fullness and completion. And on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he, he broke it. And he said, this bread represents my body that's broken for you. You know, this bread is symbolic of the, of the fellowship and the union that we now can have. And part of the irony of the, that final Passover meal is there was supposed to be a lamb on the table, but there was no lamb on the table because they symbolic the lamb is at the table, the true lamb that it symbolizes. And then he took the cup and he said, this cup represents my blood that's shed for you for their forgiveness of sins so that you can enter in 